we just started last week a series on hearing God. We started last week with, um, uh, as I explained, uh, God's been poking me with um, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In Romans 8, 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Almost as if he's trying to say, I want church on the rock to learn to hear my voice and be led by my spirit in greater ways, right? And so that's where we're focused. And so we talked last week about how you can hear God. And uh, then, you know, Ellie just went and heard God. I think it was awesome. Uh, she also, they had uh, some kind of bug run through their house. And she was, I guess Brandy was the only one that didn't get it. So uh, Ellie, uh, because it was horrendous, uh, it was just, you know, like a war zone. So uh, Ellie was praying really hard for mom not to get it. And then she, she told her, oh, God told me you're not going to get it. And she didn't. So Amen. go Ellie. Yeah, let's keep that up. Just, I'm just awesome that, you know, you got a teenage kids praying for their parents. Isn't that cool? That's different. All right. So if you want to get out your notes, um, you will see, don't look at it yet. You can look at it later. There's a homework assignment in there also. Remember I told you that this is going to be very practical. Um, and that there would occasionally be homework, and so there is. Uh, today, um, last week, having talked about uh, you can hear God's voice, today we're going to address the very important question, what does God like to talk about? Because if you want to have a conversation with him, we should find out what he likes to talk about, right? And surprisingly, there's a lot in the Bible about uh, what he likes to talk about. So here we go. Now, before we do that, before we... Uh, address what he likes to talk about. Let's talk about his thoughts, because if we can figure out what he likes to think about, uh, it may help us to discern what he likes to talk about. And again, surprisingly, there's several verses in the Bible that talk about uh, what he thinks about. The first uh, is that he thinks about you, his children, and he does it a lot. Psalm 40, verse 5, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Now that is a simple concept, a simple passage, but it bears meditation. And you need to apply it to you, not us, not the person next to you. Just take a few minutes to realize that while you were asleep last night, or you were doing your chores the other day, and wasn't even thinking about God, God was thinking about you. He was thinking so many thoughts about you specifically that you couldn't even count them. Let that turn around in your head, that God's thinking about us that much. And that should change, possibly, uh, the way we view our relationship, right? He's just really thinking about us. Now, the other thing is, his thoughts are different than we think they are. He thinks differently than we think he thinks, because we think the way we think, and he doesn't think the way we think. He thinks differently. And so probably, I think we should learn to think like he thinks. You think? All right. So this morning, we're going to try and do that. Now, I'm telling you, it's going to be very straightforward, but uh, I'm intentional here about trying to shift the way we think. There is a way we think that is human nature, and God doesn't think this way, and we've got to make that shift if we want to hear him, all right? So 
His thoughts are different than we think. Uh, this verse, Isaiah 55, a lot of these verses are going to be very familiar, but we're just going to go a little deeper in them. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, uh, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that means a big difference, not a little difference. He doesn't think a little different than us. He thinks really different than us, right? Remember, the word holy, one of the ways it's defined is just different. And so he thinks different. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So he's saying, I do things differently, I think differently, and it's a lot higher than the way you think or do. Well, has a problem with that, right? We all get that. Well, here's the thing I want you to catch. The context of this verse, if we you know, start reading from verse 1 and read up to it, uh, he's talking about coming to him, specifically coming to him for favor, for blessing, for good things, how his desires to give us good things. And he's talking about changing in the immediately previous verse, in verse 7, he's talking about changing our thoughts and our ways. We call that repentance. So put all that together, he's saying, in the midst of situations where repentance is needed, I'm thinking way higher than you are. I'm thinking way differently than you are. So I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to talk more about that because usually when we get into situations where we need repentance, which if you're approaching God, uh, happens several times a day, right? Because we're just constantly going, oh, God doesn't do it this way. I can do it God's way, right? And so we need to know how he's thinking in those situations. And uh, those are the situations where we usually don't get it right. Now, uh, Jeremiah 29 gives us a great example. And again, I want you to think in the context of repentance. He gives us a great example of how his thoughts are different towards us. In Jeremiah 29, 11, we see that his thoughts are very consistently two things. And I want you to get these. They are good towards us, and they are forward-thinking or forward-focused. He's thinking good things. He's thinking about you a lot. He's thinking differently than you think he's thinking. He's thinking good things for you. And he's thinking forward, not so much about your past as you think about your past. He's thinking forwardly. All right? So let's begin to process this. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. That's very specific. Just in case, it's almost as if he thinks we might think he's a mad, sad God thinking evil thoughts towards us. We wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't think that God was going to get us, that God was mad at us, that God was... I mean, preachers wouldn't say that, would they? For my thoughts are peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about your future and I want you to be hopeful about it. Now this is obviously when Israel was doing awesome, right? Because there were times when Israel wasn't doing awesome. This must be a time when Israel was doing really well, right? Nope. You guys know the context? This is a letter that God told Jeremiah to write to the captives in Babylon early 
in their captivity. They've just gotten there. They're on the front end of a 70-year timeout because they've spent hundreds of years playing the harlot and turning from God. That's the context of this statement where we see his thoughts. They're not even doing it. They're at their lowest point. They have just gone into captivity. And he begins to speak to them about this. Now, again, in context, if we go a few verses earlier, here's the things he's saying. And this is what's weird. Now, have you ever put your kids in timeout? At youth group, we kind of, we had a version of timeout. Uh, it was when I had a kid that kept doing stuff. I'd say, you're my, I'm your best friend now. You go everywhere I go. Because they didn't want to go where I went. They wanted to go do other things. So I was timeout. Right? And after they got tired of hanging out with me, I'd let them go. Now, here's the thing, though. If you put your kids in timeout, you're usually not picking that moment to encourage them about their future. Right? Aren't you, aren't you usually... I put you here so you can think about what you have done in the past. And when I let them out of timeout, I would review that with them. Do you understand why you were sitting here? And are you going to do that again, right? That's the way we think. God says, my thoughts are higher. I've already moved on. You getting this? So here's the deal. They're, they're in the front end of a 70-year timeout, and God says, Jeremiah, write him a letter. Here's what I'm thinking about. In verses 4 through 6, tell them to plant vineyards and marry people. I want to prosper them where they're at. In the country I sent them to, I'm thinking about their prosperity. And in fact, it said, tell them in verse uh, 7 to seek the peace of the place where I've sent them because I want them to have peace. I'm thinking about their prosperity. I'm thinking about their peace. I'm thinking about a future and a hope for them. And by the way, verse 10, they're going to come back in 70 years. I'm thinking about bringing them back. I'm already thinking about it. I'm thinking about the end of the timeout, at the very front end of the timeout. It was a long timeout. Right? So we're beginning to see a little bit of how God's thoughts and ways are different than ours. That he's, uh, he's thinking all this stuff. And this is especially at a time where, if it were me, I would be reinforcing the correction, right? And so it is especially at times when we tend to focus on correction that God will surprise us. Uh, I want to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the example is Elijah. Now, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah has a great day. Uh, it's an awesome day. If you ever have a day like this, you should write a book. Uh, and he did. Um, so he has called together all the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth. It hasn't rained for three years. He goes up on Mount Carmel. He calls down fire from heaven, consumes the offering, uh, gets all of Israel to figure out that, that uh, the Lord is God and not Baal. All the prophets of Baal, they're doing everything they can. They exhaust themselves. They can't get a spark. And at the end of the day, he's, he's killed all the prophets of, he's, you know, commanded them, you know, the people, uh, you know, God's God now. All right, kill those guys. So the prophets of Baal are dead. Um, the prophets of Ashtaroth are dead. Uh, he says it's going to rain now because it's not going to rain until I say. It's been three and a half years. He girds himself up. He runs about 20 miles back 
and, and, uh, and beats the chariot. Uh, so that's probably still the world record. And it's, it's an awesome day, right? Except Queen Jezebel is not happy that all of her prophets have been killed. And there are a lot of free-roaming devils right now because all those prophets are dead. <laughs> they really are. And she makes a simple statement. She directs all those devils at Elijah and says, uh, by tomorrow, you're going to be like those prophets. In other words, it's a, it's a very, you know, queenly way of saying, I'm going to kill you. Right? And what does Elijah do after a day like that? He runs to the wilderness, and he's hiding, and he's talking to God. Right? And he makes this statement. He says, God, they killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one left. There's nobody left, God. It's just me and and they got a wanted poster out for me, right? And Paul, in Romans 11, I think it's Romans 11, I put it in here. Yeah, Paul, in Romans 11, refers to this as the time that Elijah interceded against Israel. What's that mean? Well, you remember what Moses would do when God wanted to destroy Israel? Moses would talk God out of it. He'd give him a good reason not to kill everyone. And God would listen. Elijah's doing the opposite. Elijah's going, you might as well wrap it up, God. There is no one left following you. There is no reason to do anything else with Israel. All your prophets are dead, and I'm on the hook. So he's interceding against Israel, according to Paul. This seems like a good time for correction. What does God say? In the midst of this, God does two things. He says, he doesn't even address Elijah's mood. It's like he doesn't even hear it. He doesn't even pay attention to that. He just goes, I got three things for you to do. Do this, do this, do this. He starts talking to Elijah about his calling. And then he encourages him. By the way, there are 7,000 other prophets I've hidden just like you that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. Here's something to do, you're not alone. Here's your calling, here's some encouragement. Right? That's what God has to say at the time when Elijah, most of us would have thought, good correction time, he's interceding against Israel. Let's jump ahead and look at Peter. Uh, You guys know Peter denied Jesus three times after saying, everyone else will do it, but I won't do it, God. They They might deny you, but I won't deny you. So he's on the spot here publicly for that. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'll go through it quickly. So in John 21, uh, Jesus is restoring Peter. Remember? Uh, Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I'm not going to go into the agape phileo part of that uh, earlier teaching. But note what Jesus did. First thing, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Remember your calling. I want to talk about your calling. Let's talk about your future, Peter. Let's not talk about how you denied me. Let's talk about your future. And then he encouraged him in a very strange way. Now, Peter had said, essentially, everyone else might run, but I'm willing to die with you. And then he denied him three times. And so God says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And by the way, when you're old, you're going to die for me. You're going to be as intensely committed to me as you desire. Isn't that encouraging? 
Now, only, that's only encouraging to Peter. You've got to have a nature like Peter. He was very excited about dying for Jesus. All right? You see what's going on here. Now, again, I say these things uh, to give you an idea of how his thoughts are different than ours. How forward, how good they are, and how forward-focused they are. How he's continually moving forward in his thoughts towards us. This, to me, looked like a ripe time for correction. And so you ask the question, why no correction? And I, I don't have a scriptural answer. I'll give you my opinion. My opinion is this. That they didn't need to be corrected because they had already humbly presented themselves before God. Amen. Both of them were on their knees at his feet saying, help. Right? Peter had come to shore and just presented himself before Jesus, which is really all he wants. That's the whole point of correction. That's why you correct your kids to get them back to connection with you, right? So he had, God already had what he wanted. He had their attention. He had their focus. He had them back. He didn't need to correct them. He just started talking about their future. That's the turning point. At the point where we've turned and go, God, I'm humbly before you. We can start talking about the future. Okay. Now, Paul, I believe, understood that God thought like this. I see that in Philippians 3. So I'm going to read that to you. And again, a very familiar passage, and I'm hoping some of this will jump out at you as we read it. In Philippians 3, verses 12 through 15, Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Now, if you... You know, begin to compare yourself with people in the Bible. Paul's a pretty tough guy to match up to. He was, he was pretty good at what he did, right? Uh, but Paul's saying, I, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not there. I haven't attained. It's not done. So it makes me feel a little better that, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything near like what Paul did and don't have his issues. And, you know, he got beat a lot. And all I do is occasionally, you know, people annoy me. So... <laughs> And yet he still had issues. So, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that forward thinking thing. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. He's not just pressing on in a kind of, a, I'm just going to keep walking, you know, kind of way. He's going, I'm pressing on to what Jesus laid hold of me for, to my calling. Right? He laid hold of me for a reason, and I'm just going to keep pursuing that. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Some of us need to underline that. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying... God wants me to move forward about the calling. I, gotta, I just forget what's behind me, and I just keep going towards the call, just like Peter did, just like Elijah did, just like uh, God told them, hey, let's talk about your calling, just like God did with Israel. Hey, let's talk about when we return and the plans I have for you, right? God is very good, very forward thinking. And then I love verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, the mind 
that God talked about, the thoughts that he said he thinks that are higher than ours, right? So he's going, you need to have these kinds of thoughts. You need to have these forward-thinking thoughts that God has. And then he goes, if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you, which is a polite way of saying, if you don't have this mind, you're wrong. And when you grow up, God will show you you're wrong. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's saying you've got to have this mind that you forget what's behind and reach forward to what's ahead. Now, some of us may miss hearing God because we have a hard time forgetting what's behind. Amen. And God wants to talk about our future, and we can't shut up about our past. I'm just saying. Are you with me? Maybe to move forward, we need to just deal with our past and move on. doesn't mean you never mention it. doesn't mean you don't deal with issues. It means you don't put your identity there. You don't live there. You move on. You forget what's behind you. You reach forward to your calling in God. Amen? All right, so it's helping. So let's then begin to answer the question, uh, what does God like to talk about? Well, he talks like he thinks. He talks about the things he's thinking about, and we just saw what he's thinking about. And let's see how he does it. Ephesians 4, 29 through 30, uh, a good challenging verse. I memorized it because it makes me think I should do better than I do. Uh, Ephesians 4, 29 through 30, let no corrupt word or communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that means to build up, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So God's saying, Christians, believers, my children should communicate in such a way that people are built up and that grace is imparted. We all get that, right? We all feel guilty when that verse comes to mind after we've just not communicated that way, right? And uh, he goes on to say, and do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I've heard people talk about grieving the Spirit of God like it's if we, you know, stop worship too soon or don't let the, the fifth person prophesy. That's not what grieves the Spirit of God. What clearly in this passage grieves the Spirit of God is unwholesome communication. It grieves the Spirit of God for his kids not to build each other up and uh, impart grace to each other. It grieves the Spirit of God when his kids tear each other down. Just like it grieves you when your kids tear each other down. Right? And so, that's what he's talking about. Now, here's the thing. We all get that, and we all will happily apply that to ourselves and feel guilty about not doing a good job of imparting grace or uh, being encouraging. But does it ever occur to us that this is God's standard, and so that's the way he will communicate to us? Amen. It's his standard. Do you think he's going to hold himself to a lower standard than us? And so we will, in our weird thinking, in our not higher way of thinking, we will think that God obligates us to speak with grace and with encouragement, but will at the same time believe he's speaking to us with condemnation. Isn't that weird? It's his standard. It's his spirit. It's his thoughts. We've got to think differently. And if we get that he's like that, it makes it easier for us to be like that. It's not an obligation. It's an experience that we're paying forward. 
Amen? So, this brings me to, as I said, this communication standard is those two things, to build up and to impart grace, which brings me to this, um, because I've, I've been talking a lot about this, and you may get the idea that I don't think God corrects people, and uh, if you've been here long enough, you know that I do think that, that I've taught on that, that we've taught out of Hebrews 12, for example, he chastises every son, because that's a mark of his love. Yes, God corrects people, but his correction is redemptive. It's for a purpose. In fact, this is an easy way, one of the easy ways, to call out voices that aren't God. So here, this is really simple. If there's a voice speaking to you, and at the end of the statement, you feel condemned, or just bad, or like there's nothing you can do, that's not God. Why? Because God is redemptive. He will correct you, and he will tell you, here's the path forward. Here's how you do it differently. He will offer redemption because it's what he does. It's right there in the passage. Um, um, by God who was sealed for the day of redemption. He is all about redemption. So uh, we get caught in this. The enemy just goes, oh, you're a bad person. You screwed up and God's mad at you. I'm done. And you're like, oh, I screwed up. God's mad at me. What do I do now? I should probably try and earn his favor. Well, wait a minute. The scriptures talk about that. It just says, come to him. Repent. He'll forgive you. You don't have to sit around feeling bad. Right? God is redemptive. How many of you have heard that voice and it took you a little bit to realize, oh, there's no way out. I'm just, this is just you suck. Right? God does not do just you suck. It's not because we don't suck. It's because he can do better. Right? So his correction is redemptive. If it's not redemptive, you can wipe that voice out. God will correct you. He will be specific. Just like he's doing here. But usually, he'll go on to talking about your calling in your future. All right? So... Let's talk a little bit. We're going to talk more in the future. I'm just going to touch on prophecy a little bit today, and we'll get into this more. Um, but prophecy, at its core, is just God speaking to us through other people, right? This is God going, hey, tell this person that. Um, and so I want to look at it a little bit because we need to apply some of these lessons, some of these thoughts to this. If we don't, uh, sometimes we get a wrong paradigm on prophecy, and it'll affect the way we think God talks to us, all right? So let's go. Uh, a lot of this is going to be out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because Paul in that chapter talks a whole bunch about prophecy. He starts with verse 1. He says, uh, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts. And the word is very strong there. It literally means lust after spiritual gifts or really, 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 really want spiritual gifts. Why? So you can be cool? No. So that you can be a blessing to others. But then he says, especially that you would prophesy. So there's all kinds of spiritual gifts. Really want them. But oh, really want prophecy. Really want that one. Why? Why single out that one? Well, in verse 3, I think he tells us why. He tells us very clearly the purpose of prophecy. And if you think it has a different purpose, you should read this verse a lot. But he who prophesies speaks edification, 
and exhortation and comfort to men. I think the reason he says really desire to prophesy is because prophecy as a gift best expresses God's thoughts and God's heart, which are always those three things to his children, to build up, to encourage, and to comfort. That's the purpose of prophecy. And think about that in terms of how often God wants to talk to us about our future, how often he's forward-focused in his speech towards us. He wants to build us up. He wants to encourage us. He wants to comfort us. And so this begs the question, if prophecy is awesome, if everyone should desire to prophesy, if when the church is prophesying, people are getting built up and encouraged and comfort, why in the world would Paul have to tell the Thessalonians, don't hate prophecy? Don't despise prophecy. Why do you think God had to tell them, don't despise prophecy, if it's such a wonderful gift? And you know the answer. It could be that we were doing it wrong. Right? So let's explore that. Now, here's the thing. If we aren't prophesying with God's thoughts and with God's heart, if we aren't doing it through the filter of building up and encouraging and comforting, it will have the opposite effect. It will be damaging. It will tear down discourage and discomfort. Again, don't raise any hands. How many of you have seen prophetic ministry that tore down or discouraged or discomforted? Right? It's not what it's for. It's not what it's for. So we don't want to prophesy without God's heart and without God's thoughts. Now, one of the reasons I think we have a problem uh, sometimes with prophecy is uh, that we, we only, we, not only, we mostly have a limited biblical example of prophecy. There's not a whole lot of prophecy in the New Testament. There's a couple good ones. There's a lot in the Old Testament, and most of it is high-level prophets prophesying to kings about nations. Now, how many of you have prophesied to a king or a ruler about a nation? Any hands? Okay. Probably not that practical then, is it? And so, uh, I may develop this more in the future. I don't want to develop it more right now, but I want you to consider that a lot of Old Testament prophecy isn't, uh, doesn't really work or fit a new covenant paradigm. All right? I just want you to consider that. It's not that it's wrong. It's not that God changed. It had different purposes. There were different things going on. I might, again, talk about that more in the future. But I want you to see that if our entire prophetic model is God's like Elijah, uh, we may get it wrong when we try and apply that in a new covenant church Amen. under these, uh, this paradigm. Let me give you one example of where this happened in the Bible. Are you ready? All right. Uh, the example is James and John, who in Mark 3, uh, Jesus called the sons of thunder, which just sounds cool. I picture, doesn't it? When they come into town, it's like, I wonder if there's an announcement, like, you know, basketball game. 
And, and it, you know, and wouldn't that just be cool for the announcer to say? And here we have, starting at prophecy, James and John, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Woo! And, and, you know, that's good church, isn't it? Maybe. Let's see how it happens. All right. Luke chapter 9, verses 52 through 56. Let's see how the sons of thunders do. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans. Uh-oh, remember, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along, right? The Samaritans were people that were, had been left when Israel went into captivity. Well, actually, they were mixed. They were a mixed race because uh, they'd been left when Israel went into captivity. So, and then they'd move people around, so they were mixed race. So they weren't pure, and they were looked down upon. I don't know if there's any contemporary application for that, but there you have it. And so uh, they didn't get along with the Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like them. They would walk around Samaria, which was why it was such a big deal that Jesus said, no, let's go through, and by the way, let's stop at a well and talk at a woman and have a revival. So, but this wasn't that. It says, so they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare him for him, uh, but they did not receive him, Jesus, uh, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So here's the offense of the Samaritans. Are you ready? They were rude to Jesus, right? Here's what that merits. And his disciples, James and John, saw this, and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Who was their model? They may not have had the right context. I submit to you, they may not have caught God's higher thoughts and ways on this one. Right? Are you ready for us to go all prophetic on him, God? I've read Elijah. I think I got it. I'm ready. Well, Jesus didn't let him do that. He turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you were of. Could have easily said, uh, no, that's not what I'm thinking. My thoughts are higher. That's not what the Holy Spirit's thinking. His thoughts are higher. You don't know what manner of spirit you're of. You don't know me well enough yet for me to give you the call down fire <laughs> protocol. <laughs> right? It had a different purpose at a different time in Elijah's time. Just because he called down fire doesn't mean we get to call down fire on rude people. Amen. Come on, guys. This is Bible. This is real. And so, uh, maybe not to this extreme, we see some of this sometimes in church. And we think it's biblical because Elijah did it. All right? Or, you know, pick Elijah. If you don't call it like Elijah, maybe if you like animals, you can call a bear out to kill people. He did that, right? Can we do that? Can I call a bear out to kill the, the teenagers that are mocking me? Because I'm bald? That's what he did. Maybe the Old Testament model doesn't always work for the New Covenant paradigm, and that we should really consider the paradigm and the model that we're following when we speak for God. Uh, and he goes on to say, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I find it interesting that one of the sons of thunder, John the Apostle, uh, we see him later in life in the book of 1 John, after he's matured some, 
and experience God's thoughts and God's heart, and he can't talk about anything but love. Love your brother. Let's just love everybody. Let's love, 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 love. Where is the thunder, John? By the way, if you need to correct someone, that's not what prophecy is for. We already saw 1 Corinthians 14.3, prophecies to edify, to build up, right? Edification, correction. I'm sorry, edification, encouragement, comfort. Scripture, oddly enough, is specifically listed as for correction. Do you know that? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration from God, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. It says it right there. If you want to correct someone, have at it. Just don't pull out your prophecy tool. Just pull out Scripture. You know what's cool about that? Is prophecy is a little bit subjective. You might not get it right, but Scripture is very objective. And it's pretty safe to correct one another with Scripture. Isn't it? Isn't this amazingly simple? All right. So, let's do this. We're going to finish up with this. This is just fun. He says as he rubs his hands. Let's talk about the secrets of your heart. Now, who just held their breath? Now, what do you think if I go, I'm going to reveal the secrets of your heart. God's going to reveal the secrets of your heart. Not right now, in public, I'm going to pick out someone and reveal the secrets of their heart. Does that make anybody nervous? Yes. You know why? It's because we haven't understood. It's biblical language, but we haven't understood what he meant, and we tend to be negative, which is the problem. God tends to be positive. And we tend to be negative. And so we think God's being negative when he's being positive. So let's look at this passage that talks about revealing the secrets of our heart. And it's in 1 Corinthians 14, but he uses the phrase, but he doesn't define the phrase. And so I believe we need to interpret 1 Corinthians 14 through 1 Samuel 9, where he uses the phrase, and then we get to see it implemented so we understand what it means. Are you with me? So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Now this sounds good. This sounds like this unbeliever might get saved, right? And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed. Ooh. And this is where we start going, ooh, that sounds uncomfortable. If I put that on the sign, we're having a secrets of your heart revealed meeting. How many of you go to that? Yeah. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now that right there ought to be a clue. Because how many people unbelievers go to church, someone tells them the bad things in their heart, and they start worshiping God. Have you ever seen that? No. It might mean something else. So let's find out. If we go to 1 Samuel 9, verse 19, uh, here's where Saul uh, is getting ready to anoint, I'm sorry, Samuel is getting ready to anoint Saul 
king. You guys remember the story? Uh, Saul's a young man out looking for his donkeys, and uh, God's going to anoint him king. Uh, I, I keep joking with Rachel. Um, using a different word for donkey. Uh, Saul, even though you can't find your donkey, God's going to make you king. So, you know, you interpret it the way you want. <laughs> Sorry. Just, just give that a minute to sink in. Sometimes you don't need a lot of qualifications to be king. Anyway, this is what's going on. Saul's out trying to find his donkey. And, uh, and Saul says, uh, Samuel answered Saul, First uh, Samuel 9, verse 19, and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, and you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. Now, that's the same language, isn't it? Sounds like the secrets of his heart are going to be revealed. Ooh, let's see what it is. Well, we go on. In uh, chapter 10, uh, he begins to do this. And he says, the first thing he talks about is Saul's calling. You're going to be king. That's the secret. That's the secret of his heart. You're going to be king. And then he says in verse 6, you're going to be going up this way, and a group of prophets is going to come down, and you're going to start prophesying with them, and you're going to be turned into another man. He starts talking about his gifting, prophecy. Get this, guys. The secrets of Saul's heart were his calling and his gifting, not his issues. You understand? That leads me to believe that what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 is unbelievers are coming in. The secrets of their heart are being revealed, their callings and their giftings, and they're praising God. Now, I'll go to a meeting like that, right? It doesn't mean what we think it means. We have to learn to think like God thinks. So he tells them all that's in his heart, and he's turned into another man. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of calling and gifting. He's called to be king, and a couple times uh, throughout his kingship, uh, the Spirit of God comes on him and he prophesies. But specifically, uh, Samuel says, you'll prophesy and be turned into another man. Now, here's my thoughts. These are just my thoughts. You can disagree with me, uh, and that's fine. David uh, is not often styled as a prophet, but he was a very prophetic king. He wasn't prophetic in the way Elijah was prophetic or in the way Samuel was prophetic. But you start reading the Psalms, that dude was prophetic. Amen. Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 118. Uh, there's all kinds of significant, I mean, high-level uh, glimpses of the Messiah prophetic in David's Psalms. He was a prophetic king. Maybe God was after a prophetic king. Could, I'd love that Saul was told he would be king and was given the ability to prophesy. Was Saul called to be a prophetic king? I just, that's just a thought I had. I wonder if he was. I wonder if what kept him from being a prophetic king was his fear of the people. It says really clearly in 1 Samuel 15 that the reason he disobeyed God was because he feared the people. 
Now, let's go even deeper than that. Why did God, or I'm sorry, why did Saul fear the people? And was Saul called to be a prophetic king, but couldn't fulfill his calling because he feared the people? And look at David, of course, feared God, was a man after God's own heart. I think he feared the people. Again, just me speculating. I think he had significance issues or insignificance issues. Now, here's my clues. In 1 Samuel 9, when, Saul, uh, when uh, Samuel tells Saul, you're going to be king, his first response is, I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least of my tribe. Why are you telling me this? Right? We're told in the next chapter, when he's anointed king, we're told that he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else, and really good looking, which you think would have worked for him, right? <laughs> when they come to make him king, he's hiding among the baggage. They can't find him. They have to go get him and drag him out from behind the baggage to make him king. Again, I'm just speculating, but I'm wondering if Paul, I'm sorry, Saul, had insignificance issues that led to him fearing the people that led to him not following after God, not fulfilling his call to be a prophetic king. Amen. Amen. Maybe that's why God wants to speak to us so much about our calling and our gifting. Because maybe all of us have some occasional insignificant issues. Makes me wonder what hidden treasures what secrets of the heart are here, what giftings, what callings are here in this room, hidden secretly under a big pile of insignificance. You ever wonder that? wonder if there's anybody in this room with calling and gifting that they are largely unaware of because they just see themselves as insignificant. I'm from the smallest family, from whatever. I grew up this way. I don't have any. I didn't. I'm not that smart. I, right? And yet God wants to talk about these things. This is what he wants to talk about. At the end of the day, God wants to talk about who we really are. Ephesians 2.10. Y'all know this passage. That we are created in Christ Jesus. And created there doesn't mean... I create a bunch of people. It means I handcrafted each one. Each one is different and unique. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me expand on that. God's saying, I made each of you, I think about you a lot. I think about your future. I made each of you to be unique and significant. And not only that, I crafted Things for you to do in the future. Good works for you to walk in. And if you'll let me, I will talk to you about those things. I will talk to you about your gifting and calling. If you can begin to believe that you're significant to him. That is what he wants to talk about. God wants to speak to us about who we really are. And if he's a creator, no one else can tell you. The world will try tell you who you are. 
No one can tell you who you are but the one who made you. You have to hear his voice for that. Now, he may use another person to encourage you, just like he used Samuel with Saul. But only God can tell you who you are. And I know this both now from Scripture and from experience, that mostly what God wants to speak to you about is your significance to him. That's mostly what he wants to talk to you about. Amen?